Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Nice to have you back with us for What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. The next time you find yourself in the wee hours, staring into the darkness, wondering why in the world you can't get to sleep, take some comfort in knowing that some of the most brilliant minds and dedicated scientists are working hard to crack that mystery right now. Today, you're going to meet one of them, Stanford Professor of Psychiatry, Dr. Luis de la Sea. Now, in the late 1990s, Dr. De La Sea and his lab team made a significant discovery, and that's led to an entirely new area of research into how the brain signals sleep, wakefulness, stress, and reward. They found a system called the hypocretins, a pair of neuropeptides in the hypothalamus which influence these activities. And they're studying how these chemical messengers work and how they can be manipulated to affect change in behavior and conditions. Among Dr. De La Sea's team are the MVPs of this work, some tiny cheese-loving assistants whose mouse brains mimic the structure of our own surprisingly well. Dr. De La Sea explains all of this, with a fine reference to John Steinbeck, in what we don't mind calling a stimulating conversation. We promise you won't get drowsy. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your time today. My pleasure. You made a critical discovery on what can affect our wakefulness and our sleeping habits. For those of us who are not scientists, could you describe these two special brain neuropeptides that you discovered and really what they do, how they help us or inhibit us from functioning with our sleep? Yeah, so the peptides that we discovered 20-something years ago were essentially a missing link uh, in our understanding of how the brain processes information uh, and decides when to, uh, when to sleep and when to wake up. So uh, these neurons are in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, uh, which is known to integrate a lot of information from basic uh, needs, uh, and those include food and uh, metabolic signals and uh, light several hormones. The hypothalamus integrates all of this information and computes it uh, in a way that the rest of the brain understands it. So uh, the peptides that uh, we discovered label a very small subset of neurons that compute this information for sleep purposes. In other words, these neurons sense and process information about the circadian rhythms, the light uh, dark cycles, about the food available, about uh, emotions, and a whole other set of variables and decide whether it's appropriate to uh, wake up or to stay asleep. So these two neuropeptides through these specific brain neurons control all of that. It's fascinating and it's mysterious to those of us who don't understand it, but that, but that something that tiny and intricate in this massive system called our brains can have such a huge impact on our well-being, our physical well-being, as well as our emotional and, and mental well-being. I know you're still 
learning about this and you're using mice to help learn about these peptides and to manipulate them to kind of see what they do under certain circumstances. First, how are mice similar enough to humans for that to be helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the area of the brain that I just told you about, the hypothalamus, is part of the, in the popular circles, is called the lizard's brain. So it's sort of a very primitive brain. And this part of the brain is actually very conserved uh, across uh, vertebrates and and, uh, and definitely in, in, in mammals. Uh, so, you know, mice and, and men <laughs> have a very, very similar structure of the hypothalamus. And uh, you can tell that uh, really the same nuclei uh, the same hypothalamic uh, nuclei uh, exist in both mice and men. So that's on one side. Then uh, sleep is also one of these really basic phenomena that occur across animals. And the structure of uh, sleep in mice and men is somewhat different because mice uh, wake up and sleep much more frequently than, than we do. But uh, in general, the brain states are very, very, very similar. They, they really very much look alike. So sleep is one of these constructs or phenomena that we can definitely model well in mice, unlike other mental disorders or psychiatric disease. And sleep uh, or the lack of it does impact other conditions. I'd like to ask you specifically about some of those as we get into our discussion. But as we stay with kind of this basic introduction to your work and what you're learning, uh, some simple questions. Do all creatures sleep? And why do we need it? Is it just physical recuperation or is it mental? And is that across different species? Yeah, that's another a great question. So uh, first of all, um, we don't know whether animals, all animals sleep, but uh, most animals that have been recorded do sleep. Even animals as simple as a sponge or a worm, they have obviously very, very simple uh, nervous systems, very simple quote-unquote brains, but they do experience uh, cycles of activity and rest, and their dynamics really very much look like sleep-wake cycles in higher vertebrates. So a uh, short answer to your question, yes, we believe that all animals uh, sleep. You know, regarding the function, is it just recovery or is it, uh, does it have any mental health benefit? Well, we know that most neuropsychiatric disorders are actually intertwined with sleep disorders. The list is very, very long. You know, depression, anxiety, uh, also neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, all of these conditions have uh, major consequences on, uh, on sleep architecture. So uh, sleep, we believe, is, is a very good way to intervene and to have access to at least treat the uh, low-hanging fruit, the symptoms of, of these disorders. So would it be that that sleep disorders or, or sleep disruption would make these conditions more difficult or more pronounced? Or, yeah. or is it that these conditions make sleep more difficult? I mean, do we know which... Which it is a little which? bit of a catch-22. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so some conditions like uh, Parkinson's, right? In many cases, Parkinson's starts with what's called REM behavior disorder, which is an alteration of REM sleep, and then it evolves uh, progressively into Parkinson's disease. So in that case, one could say that sleep disorder is a manifestation, an early manifestation of the neurological disorder. And in other cases, in Alzheimer's disease, another neurodegenerative disorder, and sleep is also very clearly affected and likely it's a consequence rather than a cause. 
many Alzheimer's patients do uh, experience agitation, sundowning during the evenings. They have very disrupted sleep patterns that, of course, uh, go worse and worse. So, yes, uh, sleep disorders may accelerate the um, evolution of the disorder. In your work, do you know enough yet, or, or in general, does science know enough yet about how this works to these neuropeptides in this particular system that you've identified and, and uncovered to utilize it as an early diagnostic tool that maybe could help head off some of the progression of some of these diseases? Yeah, we don't have that yet, in part because it's actually very hard to um, monitor activity of these very small group of neurons in the hypothalamus. Let me tell you that they, you know, there are only a few thousand cells that produce this uh, peptide in the hypothalamus, so it's very hard to visualize their activity in humans with non-invasive methods. They just account for a very small fraction of all neurons, so very hard to detect that. In animals, of course, we, it's, a, it's a different story, and we, 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 can, we can monitor their activity, and, and we have seen, indeed, that their activity starts to fail before we see uh, you know, other signs of uh, aging or other signs of uh, you know, brain dysfunction. So by the time, I, I guess I was thinking rather than being able to monitor them in some invasive way in humans or children or you know, an early warning system, if there were any behavioral displays early on in life, uh, sleeping patterns or yeah, problems I that see. would help that. Yeah, uh, I think we don't know enough yet. and We haven't uh, deconstructed these uh, behaviors, at least in humans, that we could uh, use to you know, predict uh, or, or intervene with these disorders. We have this paper that came out uh, recently where we looked at the effect of sleep deprivation during adolescence. In, and again, this is a, a mouse model. And we showed that the sleep disorders in adolescence can lead to social deficits in adult animals. And this phenomenon is also observed in patients with uh, autism spectrum disorder. So we know that the uh, amount of sleep inversely correlates with the social deficits uh, in these patients. So uh, it becomes actually possible, and uh, you know, answering your question, to intervene in patients that have already been diagnosed with uh, autism spectrum disorders to intervene their sleep and, and possibly improve their symptoms as they become adults. How would that work? How, how can you intervene in their sleep disorders at an, uh, you know, yeah. early on? How is that, is that possible? Well, like I said, this is the study in, in, in animals, and we can intervene with sleep in many different ways, pharmacologically, of course, uh, you know, giving sleep aids. And we can manipulate uh, brain circuits that result in, in improved or enhanced slow wave activity or, or sleep activity. And in humans, of course, for now, it would be pharmacological. There are you know, several attempts to improve sleep in non-pharmacological ways, but for now, this would be just pharmacological. How do our sleep patterns change as we age? I mean, do these neuropeptides and the, the handful of neurons that control this in our brains, do they age as well? Does it change for everyone as we age, or, or is that dependent upon each person's, um, I don't know, physical makeup? Yeah. It, it, it depends on each person, but statistically speaking, uh, yes, our, the quality of, uh, of sleep decreases with age uh, quite significantly. As a matter of fact, uh, it's known that particularly in the 60s, we start experiencing um, sleep fragmentation, which makes uh, sleep less efficient. And we have another paper that we uh, published in Science this year where we identify an, a new mechanism that could explain these uh, age-related uh, sleep fragmentation, which was completely unknown. No, nobody had a clue about uh, why our sleep quality declined, you know, a mechanism by, by which uh, 
that could explain why this happened. And I'm assuming that will lead eventually to figuring out how to maybe fix it or make the most of the sleep we can get when we're aging. I mean, if we're if it's fragmented, can we get better quality at least if it's not a longer duration? Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Because now we know the mechanism, we have a, a way to, to fix it. Essentially, what we found is that those neurons that we just talked about uh, at the beginning of this uh, podcast that are in the hypothalamus, so it turns out that as we age, they become more excitable because their composition changes. There are aging processes that occur you know, throughout the brain that affect uh, specifically those neurons. And when these uh, neurons become more excitable, then it's just easier for us to wake up. And that is essentially what, what happens in aged animals. And also we suspect that uh, it's a, a very similar mechanism in humans. Is there anything that we're doing socially and culturally these days that may make the situation of, of our sleep patterns as we age a little more predominant even in younger people? And I guess I'm getting to the use of technology, screen time, not following our circadian rhythms and, and going to sleep at a certain time and waking up with the sun. Has our culture made a difference in the quality of our sleep? Well, undoubtedly, we did not evolve to use you know, artificial light uh, in the evening. We live in a completely disrupted circadian life cycle compared to our native conditions. Yes, so of course, the use of technology before going to bed is, is one um, a major disruptor. We actually showed a couple of years ago Ada Evan Rothschild, a very talented fellow in, in the lab, who is now a professor in, in Michigan, she discovered that there's this uh, period of preparation to sleep in animals that coincides with nest building. Actually, most mammals build a nest before they go to sleep. She showed that that nest building was very predictive of the quality of, of sleep later on. So if you disrupt this preparatory phase, then the subsequent sleep is going to be a, lo a lot worse. She also identified the neural substrate, the neural mechanism that is responsible for that preparation for sleep. And those mechanisms are very likely conserved across mammals. So uh, if we engage ourselves in, in activities that disrupt this preparatory phase, we're likely going to get into sleep problems. That's really fascinating because we're not talking just about the science of our brain activity and our neurons and what our body's telling us to do, but our, I don't want to say cultural behavior, but our species right. behavior. Yep. That is fascinating. So, Absolutely. so I have to ask you then, as a sleep expert and a scientist in this area, uh, what's your preparatory phase? If that's not too personal, what do you do to <laughs> prepare yourself for a quality night of sleep? Yeah, no, th thank you for asking that. So what Ada showed in, in animals uh, is that the neurotransmitter dopamine has to be inhibited. It's actually one of the signals for preparation of, of sleep. So uh, any activity that enhances dopamine before sleep will disrupt this preparatory phase. So how do I prepare for sleep? Uh, essentially trying to inhibit my, my dopamine. <laughs> but isn't dopamine the pleasure center? Yes, well, uh, uh, pleasure... I would say it's the, uh, in many ways, a signal for anticipation. Ah. So uh, anything that will give you a reward or anticipates a reward, that is going to bring your dopamine levels really high. Again, I, I would do the opposite, not expect any, any reward <laughs> before, <laughs> before going to bed and uh, just uh, calm down and, uh, you know, uh, eliminate any expectations of a, of a salient stimulus. That would be... That would be uh, <laughs> uh, essentially the, uh, the 
the underlying principle. We could take that conversation in a different direction, but we're not going to. I'm going to ask <laughs> instead uh, about some of our societal behavior quandaries right now. It's in the news and has been for a while. Do we do daylight saving time? Should kids' classes be pushed back to a later time? Is morning sleep better than nighttime sleep? If we look at the quality of our sleep from a societal behavioral standpoint, in your work, do you see a difference in how these neuropeptides behave, depending upon some of our social constructs? So, uh, you know, we do monitor changes uh, of the activity of these systems across you know, different behaviors. And, uh, you know, we do try to manipulate behaviors in different ways. But uh, answers to those questions, would, I think they would come essentially from, from human data that we don't use in our group. And again, I think it would be uh, difficult to extrapolate from mice to human behavior in that way and vice versa. So, uh, you know, there's definitely something that will be done in the future, but I don't think we have the right approaches to address those questions now. Just yet. Yeah. Just yet. We have full faith that you will. What about next generation sleep aids or sleep monitoring or therapeutics? I mean, you talked about that right now what we have is medicinal therapy and perhaps changing some behaviors. But what do you see on the horizon? Well, actually very exciting research, very exciting developments on that front. There are um, big advances in how we monitor sleep using wearables. Many of us are familiar with these gadgets or our phones that are able to monitor our movement during sleep and they can, you know, with um, sophisticated, uh, sometimes or not so sophisticated (laughs) algorithms, they can tell us, you know, what kind of sleep structure we had during the night. Of course, uh, on its own, it's not that exciting. But when you couple this to cognitive behavioral therapy, so we have a much better understanding of the sleep patterns, I think that will make it more efficient. Regarding our own research, we have uh, developed uh, or developing a new way for sleep intervention using ultrasound. The beauty of ultrasound is that it can modulate uh, a neuronal activity in deep in the brain. So we can target the nuclei that we have uh, been talking about in the hypothalamus, very deep in the brain, that is not accessible to other technologies like transcranial magnetic stimulation or other non-invasive neuromodulation methods. We're at the very beginning of implementing this technology that I think will give very clear benefits and results. But there are many, many uh, technologies out there now that are susceptible of being implemented for sleep modulation. And it's, it's really very exciting. What's the next thing you're working on? What's the next goal of the information you already have, using that to build on learning even more? What, what's your next goal? Well, we're trying to understand what happens in the brain when we sleep. And of course, this is almost an unlimited, uh, you know, that will never end. (laughs) There are so many things that happen in our brain when we sleep and when we we are awake. We're trying to map what drives, you know, all of the components that uh, drive sleep-wake cycles. We're trying to understand better the dynamics in the cortical region. We know uh, a significant amount in deeper brain areas like the hypothalamus, but... uh, We know a lot less about what happens in the cortex, in the executive areas of the brain. And another topic is the connection between sleep function and uh, neuropsychiatric disease. It's something that we are really very, uh, very, very interested in, and, and, and it's a fascinating connection, and we definitely want to learn more. We touched on some of the conditions that may be made worse by sleep disorder, depression, anxiety, 
For those on the autism spectrum, some of those symptoms could be made more difficult with a sleep problem. Any others you'd want to talk about, you know, OCD or anything that could be helped by addressing sleep patterns? Well, uh, anxiety, uh, depression, PTSD, really the list of mental health disorders associated with sleep disorders is, is, is very, very long. Disruptions in the sleep-wake cycles have very dramatic, can have very dramatic consequences on our mood, on our mental stability. And many of those disorders can be fixed by behavioral interventions. Some need pharmacological interventions, but there are definitely tools that can help you know, improve the sense of well-being and the quality of sleep, which is really one of the fundamental pillars of, of health. If anyone has symptoms of not getting enough rest or enough sleep quality, they really should seek help of a physician, their primary care, of course, or a specialized um, clinics or physicians on this field. Do you already know from your discovery of those neuropeptides and how they work through those specific neurons for sleep and wakefulness, do they interact? Do you already know whether or not they interact with other systems that may tell you what happens while we sleep? Or are they so? Are they isolated? No, 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 no. They're they're far from isolated. They're actually connected uh, with <laughs> with many, many, many uh, uh, different systems, and uh, and that is also, you know, we discovered these peptides 20 years ago, and we're still learning <laughs> which connections they make, and uh, it's uh, it is a very uh, it's limitless, <laughs> really. That could open so many as you. Want. I'm not telling you anything new, but as a layperson, just thinking about what that could tell us about how our body regenerates itself or heals itself or how we might harness that. It's very exciting. Yes. And we know that interventions in the brain can affect well-being in, at many different levels. One of our former trainee of mine, Asia Rolls, who is now in Israel, she uh, discovered recently that there is a very very, very clear connection between areas of the brain that are involved in sleep and wakefulness and reward with the, the immune system. So, uh, you know, it's no wonder that when we have problems sleeping, also we, you know, we tend to be weaker immunologically, so it's easier for us to get infections or, or we just get sick. And the opposite is also true. When we are sick, the brain operates as a uh, command center that during sleep that facilitates fighting infections. So it's, a, again, a fascinating area of research, you know, the mind-body connection and uh, particularly during sleep, the healing power of sleep and the connection with well-being. Yeah. There's also the question of what our mind does during sleep, our dreams and perhaps more perceptive processing or accepting of information that we may not do or be able to do in our wakeful state. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what's being studied? Only partly by lab. One of our projects involves understanding what is called the local sleep. We know that when we sleep, parts of our brain are not fully asleep, and vice versa, when we're awake, part of our brains, part of our cortices are sleeping. So this uh, local sleep phenomenon lends itself to uh, speculation about daydreaming and lucid dreaming. So uh, it's not what we do in the, in the lab, but what we do in the lab has possible ramifications in that realm. Well, we certainly look forward to speaking with you again uh, when you have your next breakthrough, which sounds like it could be any moment. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us on What Makes Up Your Mind. Thank you. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Dr. Luis de la Sea, Professor of Psychiatry in the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. 
Now, we'll have links where you can read and hear more about Dr. De La Sea's work in our program notes. And as you heard him recommend, sleep concerns should be shared with a specialist. So we'll also include a link to the Stanford Sleep Medicine Center. Until our next episode of What Makes Up Your Mind, we wish you restful sleep and happy dreams. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind, Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University. 